Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Yusuf Al-Shamari. Yusuf is the founder and CEO of Sea Markets, an oil analysis company. He splits his time between London, Paris, and Riyadh. He was an energy economics analyst at OPEC, and he's a graduate of the Energy Futures Lab at Imperial College, London. Please welcome Yusuf Al-Shamari to Cleaning Up. So, Yusuf, welcome to Cleaning Up. Thanks for having me, Michael. Oh, it's a great, great pleasure. Um, I was trying to remember how long ago it was when we first met here in London. Uh, well, um, that's just very inspiring to me. I remember we met uh, in winter 2012 at uh, an uh, CEO, Energy CEO Forum in Imperial College. I was a PhD student at that time, and I was super excited to attend all energy events organized by the college. And one unique thing of being Imperial is that it brings students or research students in contact with current leaders, with current energy leaders. And I was very lucky to attend that event and where you were speaking along with the CEO of Shell, Ofgem, and leading companies. And I remember I asked a question about energy security via dialogue. So, and because there was a lot of talks about energy security at that time, prices of oil were above $100. And uh, I perhaps my question was somehow was quite kind of interesting. And then you asked me where you're from. And then when I said Saudi Arabia, and then we had very interesting discussion after the event. So. I don't. I just uh, can't imagine how this all developed until I'm, I'm meeting you today. Well, no, that's. Uh, I, I recall the event, um, and I recall you know meeting and chatting with you afterwards, um, and you were very thoughtful, and it was just really refreshing to get yeah. a view of energy security uh, and perhaps some of these kind of trends uh, in clean energy or in the energy markets overall from somebody who. Uh, from Saudi Arabia, obviously, that's a very different energy environment. Um, and it was a perspective that I had not come across. And in fact, that's why, you know, you fast forward to today, I'm hoping we can reprise part of those conversations. Um, but at the time, you were a PhD student. Um, mm -hmm. And now you run your own business. Now you are an energy or an energy information CEO. Um, tell us what it is that you do today. Um Currently, I've, uh, after, doing, after finishing my PhD, I've done uh, five years postdoctoral research uh, in energy economics. So I started at the I International Atomic Energy Agency, where I worked on assessment of uh, clean hydrogen production via cogeneration of uh, nuclear power. So that is combined generation of hydrogen and electricity via steam electrolysis for refinery applications. Then I found myself very interested in that field because I came from Pierre College having done chemical engineering. So it was my, my study was all experimental based. 
uh, on clean hydrogen production from underground gasification. Um, then I've pursued further research and energy systems analysis where I looked at the decarbonization of Saudi electricity system, looking into CCS, renewables, nuclear, and how we can meet uh, Paris targets by 2030, um, looking at not just the Saudi electricity sector, but also the industrial sector and the transport sector. Um, uh, after that, uh, having done five years uh, of research in energy economics, I uh, had very much interest in uh, oil markets and how we can relate between what's going on in the energy transition sector and what, what would be the effect of the oil market business on that transition. So I, while doing my postdoctoral research, I was a fellow at a research fellow at OPEC for uh, half a year, where we looked at the uh, impact of uh, fuel, the, uh, the impact of this uh, fuel oil um, regulations and desulfurization because you know there are some stringent regulations on the sulfur on fuel oil and how would that affect demand on fuel oil in the shipping sector so that has also as a, while also doing all that research i was a regular visit uh, attendee to opec uh, ministerial meetings since 2013 and this has given me i would uh, believe a, a confident experience to start uh, giving consultancy of course before starting my own uh, consultancy i was an individual consultant to many uh, um, uh, uh, i would say companies in the uk and in saudi arabia and then I decided that it is now, now time to start doing our own, uh, um, let's say, oil demand outlooks and looking into how would the, um, the oil demand would affect on energy transition and where could prices be over the, let's say, two years or five years from now. So at Sea Markets, our the uh, the main target that we're looking at is how we can. Um, help clients or traders, whether they are in the financial sector or in the uh, physical trading se sector, uh, navigate through the complexity of the oil markets. And these factors can be macroeconomic, geopolitical, technical. In fact, there's uh, the oil market, I would say it's a, um, it's a multifaceted um, field that requires all types of disciplines. There's not just economics, perhaps someone would look at it as only an economist, but in fact, it's a multifaceted sector. And there where I try to advise uh, traders in, the, in, the, in that particular market, whether they are oil companies, banks, governments, on where could the market look like in the uh, months or years ahead, and how can they manage the risk? Okay, so but if I summarize that, that's uh, thank you for that was a, that was actually great to catch up uh, those last, you know, the kind of the the arc of your career. But uh, if I summarize it, you started by looking at um, hydrogen from nuclear, which is, um, uh, they'd call this pink hydrogen. If you look at the kind of yes. color chart of hydrogen, there's yes. the blue hydrogen, uh, gray hydrogen, the way we do it now with unabated fossil fuels. Then there's blue hydrogen. We'll talk about that perhaps um, uh, in the context of NEOM, where there's a big blue hydrogen. Um, uh, I think it's from NEOM, or at least yeah. maybe it's a green, a green hydrogen, green yes, hydrogen, and NEOM. Which definitely is NEOM's plan, which yes. is hydrogen uh, through electrolysis from renewables, and pink hydrogen, which is hydrogen from nuclear. So you started with the, the, the low-carbon hydrogen, and then uh, you talked about investigating the economics of CCS and of renewables, um, but you've moved all the way over to oil. I mean, does everybody who is serving 
you know, I'm, I'm not sure what your client base is, but does everybody who's serving a, a largely Saudi uh, client base end up doing oil analysis rather than, uh, than anything else? Um, uh, well, uh, to me, uh, the oil sector, as uh, those working in the oil and oil research, would come from different backgrounds. Even if you look at those working, for example, at uh, Thomson Reuters or IHS or um, any of these leading consultative firms, they would bring people from engineering, from economics, or even at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, so I would say it's a uh, multidisciplinary field. And as long as, uh, because you, if you wouldn't be able to understand the oil markets, if you don't understand the supply chain. Right, starting... right. I guess, but yes, if I can just, uh, you know, restate the question, you could have become, you know, Saudi's leading clean energy uh, analyst or, or, or company, uh, but you have had to, you've had to, or you've decided to, to uh, focus do oil markets. In, on well, oil. Uh, th that's, uh, well, to me, I've, I haven't been away from oil anyway, because my PhD right. was all focused on, um, uh, let's say, conversion of heavy oil to hydrogen with, with captured CO2. So I've been in the oil business since my PhD, but uh, during my, after my PhD, my postdoctoral research was focused on energy transition. So I, but even the energy transition that I was looking at was focused on clean hydrocarbon technologies. And this was a big, this is a big field at Imperial College because there's a big theme at Imperial now saying clean fossil fuels. And this is a major reason why I was looking at the role of CCS, carbon capture from air, uh, thermolysis, all these new technologies that enable the let's say, clean use of fossil fuels. Okay, but if I could ask you now to, um, you, you talk about the transition. Can I ask you to summarize what 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 is the sort of, overall Saudi position or view on the clean energy transition that I've spent you know, nearly 20 years talking about. Is it that, don't be silly, it's not happening? Is it it's happening, but it's slow? Is it being embraced? Is it being resisted? You know, what, what is it, because you know, I, and you're speaking to somebody who has never been to Saudi Arabia, and I suspect many of the audience won't have been either. So how is it seen in Saudi? Uh, well, uh, after the talk, I would like to facilitate an invitation to you to visit Saudi Arabia and see the uh, the, the great change. But uh, for now, um, uh, you've see you've mentioned that twenty years, so this is starting from about two thousand and one. In two thousand and one, we I don't think in Saudi Arabia we have thought about energy transition at all. Uh, there was minor initiatives on solar energy, but it was very on a very limited scale. Now, the starting, the energy transition in Saudi Arabia, in, in fact, started with energy efficiency. So the energy efficiency center was established by the current energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, in order to reduce crude oil consumption and power generation and, and water desalination. Um, so let's say, for example, non-transport uh, applications. Uh, in order to... Um, leave more oil for exports because you know the country runs on uh, the gdp of the country is mainly composed of crude oil exports uh, until now uh, so that was the major target and then we have so a lot of uh, non-transport uh, applications of where oil was actually a, ma a major feeder stock where oil was replaced by natural gas and 
Currently, natural gas, natural gas makes up more than 50% of local power generation in Saudi Arabia. So, of course, it means that the carbon footprint of power generation in Saudi Arabia has been uh, massively reduced compared to, uh, let's say, to the year 2000 and before. And also from the uh, power desalination sector, also natural gas is also being used uh, to a large extent. Um, Currently, with after Paris Agreement in 2015, well, and Saudi Arabia is, of course, is uh, has signed that agreement, has pledged uh, something like 130 million ton reduction by the year 2030. Uh, of course, all these pledges, of course, subject to revision and changes uh, as we, as of course, uh, with the new with the new cops coming into in the in the coming years. Uh, so I believe now there is a target to have at least 10 gigawatt of renewables uh, in the electricity sector by the year 2025. And the target is to take off all the oil that is still being used in power generation. And the power generation will only be composed of natural gas and supplemented by renewables. And renewables here, I'm talking about solar and wind. So we'll have at least uh, let's say 10 gigawatts of uh, ca capacity from uh, renewables and the power generation sector. We're also interested in renewables for water desalination, but that is still at early stage of development. It depends really on the technology. Okay, but let me let me let me push you on this. Um, let's come back to the kind of the climate negotiations and so on. But you know, I, I go back to. 2011, 50% um, of electricity was based on oil, right? That's this kind of the start of that journey that you've just described, 50% of domestic um, electricity. And of course, because of all the air conditioning and the population growth and people becoming wealthier, yes. that was just going up and up. And there was even a, I think there was a city group, somebody forecast that um, Saudi would become an importer of oil in order to fuel, which was a kind of ridiculous, sure. a ridiculous report because there would be nothing to pay uh, for those imports with. But that's the situation, 50% of, um, of electricity was oil. And I actually wrote a piece with Standard Chartered saying, hey, if you used solar, solar power, you could save the oil for exports and it would have a positive net present value. And um, it was very interesting because the report sank without trace. Not nobody, no Saudi engaged. No, we got no comment. Nobody said anything. But in May of 2012, it was announced that there would be 41 gigawatts of solar capacity uh, by 2030. So I don't know whether anybody was listening. The problem is that there's just been sort of announcement after announcement after announcement after announcement after announcement, to be honest, since then. And I don't know what the solar power is now currently within Saudi, but it's, it's well, maybe you have the figures, but it's kind of one or two gigawatts, isn't it? It's still very, very small considering the scale of the economy and the country and the resource. Um, well, I would say the... Uh most ambitious uh, renewable uh, renewable energy projects kicked off um, uh, just recently after 2015. Um, uh, and I would say here, since uh, the, our current energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, took office, 
um, we've seen a much acceleration in terms of the speed of implementing uh, renewable energy projects. I agree with you. Yes, in the past, when uh, the 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 in fact the pace at which um, solar and renewable energy projects were to be implemented was very very slow, and that is because just look at let's look at the economics. Crude oil was trading at a high price. And um, there was no push towards climate change agreements. So I think that could be, uh, let's say, an economic justification into why the uh, implementation of uh, renewable energy project wasn't as fast as it is taking place now. Now, with uh, as you know, because there is expectation of oil demand can peak within 10 or 20 years, um, it's a big uncertainty. Some companies are even expecting by 2025. Um, so that is a major reason why the speed has been much, much accelerated. With the, uh, this smart city announced by the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, the world's largest high green hydrogen project was announced, which is more than 600 ton of hydrogen to be produced just directly from solar energy. So, and that is, uh, so that clean hydrogen is expected to be uh, exported to be used as a fuel or for various uh, applications, as you know. Um, so but, but, I believe these announced. are the- but Yusuf, let me come back to, it's always announced, right? So we, th there's, um, you know, uh, there was this big announcement in 2018 with SoftBank uh, that there would be 200 gigawatts of solar power before the year 2030. The fact is, last year in 2020, no solar power was installed. So for all the acceleration, it's 300 megawatts here and it's a few hundred there and it's a few gigawatts overall. But it's still, you know, if it's going to be these very substantial figures, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be a lot more acceleration than we're really seeing. Um, I, I, well, I think the speed at which it is taking place is, uh, is just significant because it's not just, uh, the, by the way, an installment, because even now there has been a deregulation on uh, solar panels. So now we don't just need to install solar panels and supply it to consumers, but now consumers can actually install solar PVs just uh, at, on their roofs. And this has been a major um, let's say, uh, reform in the electricity sector in uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, and I believe that would also accelerate the speed at which renewables are taking uh, place. Um, uh, if you go now to the uh, south, uh, to, the, to the northwest of the kingdom, you'll also see not just solar, but even wind turbines. Giant wind turbines have all already been installed and uh, supplying clean electricity for the local uh, region there. I believe there's something like uh, more than 10,000 houses are ready to be supplied from wind energy just in the northwest of uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So yeah, I, I think, I guess, you know, I'm probing because you have to, you understand from, from where I sit and from where I think most of the audience sits, the question is, you know, you, you see this stream of announcements, you see relatively small, it's not nothing, but you do see relatively small, you know, numbers of projects being delivered. And you see this enormous focus on having the cheapest, the single cheapest project. And the question is, is, is Saudi Arabia ever really going to become a kind of renewable superpower, as I call it, where you've got the cheap solar, you've got the cheap wind, but you've got to have tens of gigawatts to move the needle. If it's just, you know, if it's just small numbers of projects, um, then that doesn't, that, that's not going to kind of change the energy flows in the world. 
but you're optimistic. You remain optimistic, or or or. Um... Well, I am. I am an optimist, absolutely. Um, but I don't think that we we will be like. Okay, I I'd, I'd love that we become an energy superpower or a, a renewable energy superpower over the uh, ten years. But certainly, the speed has to take place in a uh, let's say in a consistent manner. Um, still, oil is the major source of, or let's say, the uh, dominant, uh, uh, let's say, energy player on the global energy mix, expected to be by 10 to 20 years. So Saudi Arabia doesn't want to move away from oil. It wants to make use of all energy resources available within the kingdom. And this, the let's say, the targets, the as with few, if you have seen the 2030 vision. The targets that have been announced by the vision are extremely ambitious. So if we look at where we have been just five years before now and today, they, the, the speed at which these projects have been implemented and the reforms that have been happening are just incredible. So that makes me ambitious that we should actually be able to achieve our renewable energy targets by the year 2050 and hopefully become energy uh, or net uh, CO2 uh, uh, neutral by uh, the year 2050, as we've seen, for example, in nearby GCC countries. Right, but if but the target right now is 50% renewable electricity by 2030. Uh, yes, but now, is that's that coming realist- from. Is that realistic? I mean, you know, at some point, isn't there a credibility issue? Um, well, well, you can't uh, base your all your power generation on renewables, can you? No, but the target, the official target is 50%. Okay, so I would think that's a realistic target to have 50% of your electricity coming from renewables. Isn't that a... I mean, it's realistic from a sort of engineering perspective. Yes. I would argue, but in that, I mean, you've got this fabulous solar resource and you've got the wind resource. It's it's realistic from a finance perspective because, you know, I think that the the low-cost resources, um, even in 2002, 11 when i calculated it the npv yes it was a, um, the npv at that time was driven to a certain extent by high oil prices maybe a hundred dollars i think we calculated on sixty dollars so the npv the value of those projects is driven by freeing up more oil to sell at the time there was a kind of constraint on product on oil um output on oil production so the idea was don't burn it sell it and then reinvest that money in solar. But even then, the NPV was positive. So there's no finance reason not to do it. There's no um, technological reason, no resource reason. And I guess what I'm probing at is, is there a, is there a social reason or is there, a, why, why is it, why has it taken so long for momentum really to be established in this sector in Saudi? Is it because it is fundamentally threatening the, this, this shift to clean energy is in some way fundamentally threatening to the economy. And therefore, you know, there's a sort of hanging back, a kind of a, a resistance. Well, I don't think it's, uh, there is any political reasons behind it. But if we think about the energy sector as a whole, um, I don't think any country would, uh, would base all of its uh, energy for security reasons, all its energy mix on only renewables. No country would do that. For example, look at uh, the UK. They're still having um, uh, perhaps even natural gas as a part of the mix for electricity generation, but certainly clean natural gas, even though they they would have interesting uh, wind resources coming from the North Sea. 
So well, look, the UK is the UK has got nuclear, um, which you know Saudi is also um, you know uh, you know pu pushing into its mix. But the UK, no, I mean net zero twenty fifty would be no natural gas unabated in the generating mix. Yeah. Germany most certainly wants neither nuclear nor natural gas nor coal. But that's not the issue. The issue is really the translation of the announcements and the targets, even fifty percent target i wouldn't i don't argue with the targets i i'm just questioning the the uh, the momentum but um but let's let's get on to the neom and the hydrogen plans because in a sense that's even more core to the saudi business model isn't it because it's it will be selling a fuel ammonia or hydrogen around the world where do those plans currently sit how are they coming along um, well, the markets for hydrogen, we've seen the first shipment of uh, blue ammonia going to Japan by Saudi Aramco. So yeah. I believe we're going to see green hydrogen well, uh, coming from New York, going to markets where hydrogen is being used as already as a fuel that uh, I believe Asia would take a, a major would be a major target for that because they already have some interesting infrastructure. There is already a, a market relationships developed between Saudi Arabia and Asia. So I believe there we can st start. Certainly there is a target even to export to Europe. And we have seen a visit by John Kerry just uh, a couple of weeks ago to the kingdom. And one of the most important topics discussed with the Saudi crown prince was the green hydrogen project. So where, so essentially the US wants to look at Saudi Arabia as a, as a hub for green hydrogen generation to be exported globally. Right, but you're an economist, you're an energy economist. Have you looked at the cost of generating power in Japan from the blue ammonia from Saudi or the green hydrogen from Saudi? Because I look at that and I'm very happy. Look, I, I, love, I love pilot projects. I love, the, I love engineers, I love innovative stuff but I'm not seeing it just in terms of the transport costs, um, the production costs for green hydrogen and the transport costs. I mean, when, when I've looked at hydrogen and ammonia, the only way that you can transport it in a cost-effective way, this isn't oil. This isn't just, you know, room temperature in a ship. This is really complicated stuff to move around and, you know, it has to be chilled and it has to be compressed and, and, and so on. And it, it adds, I mean, it doubles, it triples, it quadruples the cost. So how have you looked at the economics of that? Has, is this a realistic plan, do you think? Well, I, I certainly uh, I think, yes, it is a realistic plan because if uh, Saudi Arabia can be, I think it is the world's lowest producer of the green hydrogen coming from solar power. So the solar energy that can be generated from Saudi Arabia can be at a record low. I believe it's something like uh, less than uh, 10, uh, 10 cent uh, per kilowatt hour. So it would be one. Yes, it could. It, it could be at um, no less than ten dollars. Well, it's pushing yes. at the margins of ten dollars per megawatt hour. So yes, one so cent, one cent so per that, kilowatt hour. Yes. So that's solar generation. Yeah. If we want to factor in now the cost of uh, green hydrogen production, I believe it's going to be certainly below uh, two dollar. Per, per kilogram, per kilogram. Of, hyd of hydrogen. Right. So that, that, that now we can... In Saudi, surely, Yusuf, in Saudi, yes. I agree with that. You can get $2, $2 green hydrogen in Saudi. But the moment you try and export it by anything other than a pipeline, you're going to add 
two, three, four dollars per kilo to that price? Um, well, they, it will it... be produced as uh, sold as uh, ammonia. Right. So ammonia is uh, kind of a cheaper way of uh, storing hydrogen. Certainly, it wouldn't be sent as uh, as uh, as pure hydrogen that will be converted to ammonia and then shipped. So that makes it cheaper to transport. Yes, I guess I'm still I'm still grappling for the economics of that because. Um, uh, well, I yeah, because I, the, I the ammonia that's currently made in in Saudi, you're making ammonia, making fertilizer, um, that would be using hydrogen at one dollar uh, per kilo, possibly yes. even a bit lower than that, because you've yes. got a lot of gas. So yes. now you're talking two dollars, and then when you export it, let's call it three dollars. You know, uh, I, well, I I don't I'm think it's going to be three dollars. But this is these no are problem. challenges everybody faces around the world. Right? I agree, I agree with you, but I don't think it's going to be three dollar. Uh, from let's say from Saudi Arabia to to reach Japan, for example, I, I think the cost will be slightly less. Um, looking at the uh, the project that has already been uh, the, or the the experiment that is already done between Aramco and Japan, I th I'm sure they've sold it at a much competitive price. Well, I'm sure they have, but I'm sure they've also yes. made a loss. Um, uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't think they would uh, go for it if there is no uh, economic gain. Oh, okay. Well, I, I perhaps would differ because there's a tremendous PR, uh, you know, uh, coup ah. to be selling the first uh, blue hydrogen and the blue blue hydrogen. Um, you know, the the the, the premium to or blue ammonia rather. Um, you know, the the premium for that is probably not enormous. It's probably not absolutely huge, but somebody has absorbed the cost of removing the carbon and presumably um, storing it underground. That wasn't free. So almost by definition, there's been a loss because that cost has been absorbed by somebody. Um, I think what, what Aramco is doing, so it's a demonstration project, of course. Yeah. They uh, did not say it's um, uh, like it's a, a, lot, a super large scale project, but all the CO2 that has been captured Aramco now owns SABIC, so they can easily send it to SABIC to convert it to something else. There is already a demonstration of project to convert CO2 to urea. So I believe because the amounts of CO2 that has been captured is not so large, so they can deal with that and can make it into right. some useful course, products. Right. We, 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 but you know, then, of course, if you do that, then it still ends up in the atmosphere and you still get the global warming. So let's, let's come back to the, the, the um, your... You know, the question that I started and you kind of dodge very nicely, you dodge. I was asking, what is the attitude to the um, the transition, um, the clean energy shift overall? I mean, you, you, you dodge to talk about these marvelous things that Saudi is doing, planning, announcing and or doing. Um, but I'm going to remind you of a, of a tweet which somebody sent out in January and you retweeted it. Therefore, by definition, you now become responsible for this tweet because you retweeted it. Um, you have to, I apologize in advance, but it said the top five stories in oil and gas in, this was in January, 2020. So this chap, Sami Al-Nuaim, you, you may oh, know Sammy. Him. Yeah, 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 Sammy. Yeah, and he yeah. said, in my opinion, the top five stories in the oil and gas industry in 2020 were number one, COVID-19 energy demand drop, Two, historical um, crude negative prices. That was in April last year when crude prices went negative. Three, the natural gas price, um, which fell to the lowest, price, lowest level in 20 years. Four, 
the OPEC plus agreement and five approval and the global start of the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, the reason I found that so fascinating is this is 2020, the top stories of 2020, I think he was summarizing at the end of the year, not one of them related to climate change, to emissions, to any sort of strategic shifts um, in the global energy mix, not electric vehicles, not the shift from coal to natural gas, which could be a positive. These are all sort of didn't even make the top five. Um, well, uh, I believe the person who tweeted that uh, Dr. Samian name is the was a former president of the Society of Petroleum Engineers. So perhaps they look at that as something that possibly for the petroleum industry. Um, and they also look at things that has a direct impact on the oil markets. And I believe these are the things that perhaps have uh, had a major impact on driving oil prices, COVID-19, vaccines, um, uh, the negative prices of WTI. So I would agree with that as major drivers for the oil market. But if we want to talk about the oil industry in general, certainly I would agree with you that climate change will be on the agenda. But we have not really seen a major uh, climate uh, initiatives or major uh, um, decisions made on a climate change in the year 2020. So the when we had the COVID-19 pandemic hitting the economy, everybody everybody was busy on how to deal with the pandemic. So um, people also were worried about the, um, well, which, there was also, if you remember, there was a in massive increase in crude oil production back in uh, between March and uh, April. Crude oil prices went down, so investors were worried about the um, uh, Wall Street, S&P, all these financial indices were all going down. So I believe that has a bit made people uh, worried about the finance. But, it, but if you go to your, your analysis, you say you try and give people kind of this forward view, the strategic view over, you talked about three years, five years, and, and I think beyond. Um, in 2020, we also saw um, electric vehicles in Europe reaching, I think it was 14% of new car sales. This was very interesting because in the last crisis, in the financial crash, mm -hmm. All of the clean stuff kind of, I don't want to say it stopped dead, but it definitely suffered. So people sort of said, right, I'm avoiding risk. I won't do clean energy. I won't do electric cars. Whereas in 2020, what we actually saw is an acceleration of the shift towards clean energy and clean transportation. And I think globally, we're at something like 4% of car sales. But in Europe, it's really racing ahead. I mean, electric cars had a breakthrough year in 2020 and it's only going on from there. Is that a big factor that you consider in your forward view? Or, Absolutely. Or, or, or are people just so don't want to, you know, are your clients kind of so they don't want to hear it so you don't tell them it? No, no, absolutely. I have to be honest and uh, neutral about the where the industry would would be would be going forward. We'll take into account when looking at forecasting oil demand when uh, one year after another. The first, the state of the global economy, um, the growth in the GDP, all for the as a holistic global, let's say, outlook, and also in a regional. Um, outlook. So we look into when we come to look at on a country or a regional level, certainly the penetration of EVs in Europe will certainly have a dramatic impact on fuel demand, and we have to factor that in. And that's why we are not seeing a significant rise in 
uh, oil demand in the OECD countries compared to the non-OECD countries. So most of the demand, when we look at, is made, let's say 50% is coming from China, followed by India and other developing uh, countries, uh, including, of course, Brazil, partly some in, in Africa and these emerging economies. But certainly, the I would say the OECD countries, including Europe, is nearly peaking. At, uh, Does that mean that you're still forecasting oil demand growth from the non-OECD for how long? Um, well, I would say uh, mainly we're going to see growth coming from China and India, mainly in the upcoming, uh, let's say, 10 years time. And that is due to mainly population. Uh, we still, um, in India, a uh, population of uh, uh, between a billion and 1.5 billion people, and at least half of them are under the poverty line. So with people becoming richer, they would certainly need to own new cars but, and travel. But, but what happens if the, you know, the, the, the trends in battery prices would suggest that sometime uh, or, already now, on a total cost of ownership basis, electric vehicles are cheaper. So electric buses, uh, anything in urban transportation, it's cheaper to, to, to own if you take the purchase price and the running cost. And by about 2025, it will then be sticker priced. You walk into a showroom, the cheapest car will be the electric car. So why would the developing world not flip much more uh, dramatically? Maybe not in the next three years or five years, but within the next you know, 10 and 15 years, because cost will be such a factor there and these vehicles simply become cheaper. And we've already seen it with two wheelers. We've seen it with buses. And aren't we gonna see the same thing with cars, delivery vans, vehicles that, you know, just going you know, heavier and heavier vehicles? Um, that, I, I, I agree with you, but the, the rate for EVs to take over the share of conventional vehicles, um, I don't think it's, uh, we, we, currently we're seeing something like uh, between 5 to 10 million EVs already on the street compared to 1.2 billion conventional yeah. vehicles, even 12, if, we, 12 million, if we, but yes, it's small. Yeah. So even if we have something like, let's say, um, uh, a high penetration of EVs, it will mainly be on the light duty. Uh, vehicles. We still have to, uh, we, or the technology to electrify uh, trucks is still um, at early stage of development. And that is where most oil demand is actually concentrated on diesel. So I believe this, there will still be demand on diesel. There will still be demand on jet fuel. And even the rate of at which light duty vehicles are being electrified I don't think we can see that. Of course, you may be arguing with me that it could be at an exponential rate, uh, but still I believe that there is a room for conventional vehicles to, to be. Yeah. And by the way here, <laughs> one thing I'm worried about in uh, oil demand and the electric sector more than the electrification is actually the digitalization. So currently after COVID-19, people perhaps would need to travel less. Maybe people won't come back to do business travel as much as before, uh, even uh, they don't need to travel within the city as much as before with, uh, to go to work and come back because with more flexible work options. So I believe that could affect oil demand on uh, much more than the, even the rate of electrification over the short term. Um, and over the long term, certainly uh, what, what I'll also be worried about is not just 
the rate of at which electrification is happening, but actually the oil price, oil, due to the shortage in investment in the oil industry, currently we're seeing prices more than $75. And that is mainly due because we've, we were in a recovery period in 2020. Now we are in the between 2020 and 2021. Uh, people, they have, there's a high demand to travel and the, the OPEC plus is keeping a, uh, is keeping the tap not open, fully open yet with all, between five and 6 million barrels of supplies off the markets. And we see even just yesterday with the, there's a deadlock agreement between Saudi Arabia and Emirates and that has sent the oil price over $77. So I believe that, that will be reflected on fuel prices. And as a result, what can that mean? That possibly would mean more shift towards electric mobility. Nobody wants to pay more than $3 for their uh, conventional cars because at the end of the day, they will end up paying more for the fuel than if they think about owning an electric vehicle, especially with the reduced mobility yeah. options after COVID-19. So I believe these, factors will have a higher role to play in moving towards electric mobility in the coming 10 years. I think that's right. And I, you know, the, I think the underinvestment at the moment in the oil space is quite worrying. We will, I think we will see a period of a few years of quite high prices. They will, you know, help to shift the demand. I mean, it could be the kind of last the last tango, the last, I don't know, the last hurrah, um, I suspect not. I suspect we'll see multiple hurrahs in terms of prices uh, bouncing around. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess I would, you know, I'm, I'm not here to give you know, advice to anybody, but I would be very careful about assuming that all these transitions are slow um, because there are tipping points where things actually we've seen, you know, in, um, uh, in terms of, um, coal coming off the system in the UK or the growth of electric vehicles first in Norway and now it's happening in Europe, LED light bulbs, you know, once things become cheaper, boom, a lot of people flip quite quickly. And then of course, cars have got a long life and vehicles have got a long life. So I think we'll, we'll do you know what? We'll, 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 we'll keep track of this and you can come, you can come back and we'll kind of, we'll, we'll revisit this discussion in, uh, in coming years and see who was right, whether it kind of went faster than you thought or slower than I thought. And uh, that'd sure. be good fun. Uh, well, I, go ahead. totally agree. Well, I totally agree. It would be very interesting to see how this energy mix will transform over the next five and, and 10 years. I want to just finish with, uh, by looking at um, COP26, the climate negotiations, and get your, se your sense of Saudi's role and position, because it feels to me like there's a change in gear. The world is now talking about net zero. Net zero means you know, not means threatening the export markets for the product, which is the lifeblood of the Saudi economy. It's not the same as saying, well, you know, we ought to cap emissions, we ought to reduce them a bit. This is net zero. And it's arrived on the scene very rapidly. Uh, you know, Paris, you could argue, kicked it off. Paris, certainly we heard from um, Cristiano Figueres in one of the early episodes, um, Paris led to, because there was this focus in Paris on under two degrees, Paris led to the a report by the IPCC on one and a half degrees, and then that shocked everyone. So now everybody is focused on net zero. 
not reducing carbon, but net zero. And yes. that becomes much more threatening for Saudi. What is Saudi's negotiating strategy likely to look like? Um, well, uh, Saudi Arabia is focusing on circular carbon. So whereby um, I believe, uh, as I uh, hear from the statements of the Saudi energy ministers and various uh, reports being published, um, even at uh, Davos uh, 2020, there was an important uh, statement from the Saudi energy minister on what, what are the solutions being made from Saudi Arabia to tackle climate change. And these solutions would focus on circular carbon, whereby the world uses oil and that oil, the CO2 being captured from that oil being used for high uh, value products. Um, so the, the circular carbon economy is now very much being uh, well invested in and in, in the kingdom. And I believe that will be the key strategy to, to negotiate in COP26. So I believe the kingdom will exhibit its initiatives and in, uh, in circular carbon um, and even the research that is being done at uh, KAUST, the Saudi Arabia, um, let's say, best research uh, institution. Um, uh, also, um, solutions being done in Neom and um, in a green hydrogen on CO2 capture for enhanced oil recovery. So I believe they would exhibit that as the solution that would enable the world to move on um, without an economic hurdle of, uh, let's, say, an unre let's say, an unrealistic uh, fast speed of a transition uh, right. that could possibly threaten energy security. But let's 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 look at the uh, the circular carbon. I mean, if you're looking at oil use in transport, how how do you make that circular? How do you get? Well, how do you how do you take the CO two out of the tailpipe emissions of a truck, a bus, a car, you know, or or, or any other vehicle? So I understand. Uh, for the oil yes. that's used in plastics or for the oil that's, you know, that, that's a different challenge. But what about transport? Um, well, the technology is at the early stage of development. So now there are two types of uh, research being done on uh, tr uh, decarbonizing transport sector. Um, the uh, first one would be uh, to use hydrogen. Yeah. Just um, and Saudi Aramco has already established a hydrogen fueling uh, uh, station just uh, near its uh, facilities in Dahran. Uh, so they are interested in hydrogen as a transport fuel. That's one. Perhaps uh, you, you may not agree with me on hydrogen because the EV sector people, they think, all right, hydrogen may be important, more important for fertilizers. But I think it will still find the market on the transport sector. Uh, that's one. The other target is uh, making a, a conve conventional vehicles more efficient by re reducing the amount of CO2 and using less fuel. For example, uh, driving at uh, 100 kilometers for uh, only a few liters of gasoline. So let's say reducing the amount of gasoline being used for a given amount of distance. So that's two. And the third uh, target is combusting CO2 or combusting the fuel and capturing the CO2 on board. But this technology is very new. It's been demonstrated at uh, Saudi Aramco and whereby the, the person uh, using the fuel and uh, the CO2, all the CO2 generated from the, from the car engine itself is stored on board. And the person goes to, to the station where they, uh, uh, let's say, uh, unfell. The right. CO2 storage and refill with, uh, let's say, gasoline. 
okay. in this way, they make the, the car CO2 free. Okay, so they, and, and you know, certainly from an engineering perspective, that's feasible. Um, that, that's a you know, that's a very early stage one, and of course, it will have costs. It will have absolutely. There'll be an enormous parasitic load on the car on the engine in order to, to separate back out the the CO two. Um, but I tell you why I think this is just so important, and I'm um, I, I'm I'm really um, sort of looking for any signs, reading the tea leaves about Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia's positions in COP26 and beyond. And um, because I, it does feel like it's so threatening to the economic model. And I look at, um, I, I follow uh, Mohammed Al-Saban, the former um, chief negotiator to the, uh, to the IPCC from Saudi Arabia. Um, he's a former advisor to the Minister of Petroleum. He's a professor or was a professor of economics at King Abdulaziz University. But, you know, this is the chief negotiator for many years for Saudi Arabia. And this is what he's saying um, about climate change. Um, nonsense. You have based the whole argument on the assumption that the change in climate is human induced and not natural happening over millions of years. Nonsense. Um, the level of proof that the climate change we're seeing is human caused is at the same level of question. Hang on a second. Um, uh, wait a minute. Let me read another one, a better one. Uh, the US and IEA and the West are fighting against oil investments, and this is the price they have to pay. They are excluding coal and claiming fighting climate change. The biggest ever lie in today's world. Now, this is somebody who has detached himself from all of the science uh, and is essentially saying climate change is, he calls it, the biggest ever lie. And that's the former negotiator for Saudi Arabia. So you can understand it gives me quite a lot of concern as to whether there's going to be a kind of positive engagement, which we saw in Paris and we are still seeing in the climate negotiations. But is there a point where Saudi Arabia just says, do you know what, this thing threatens our economy and we're going to slow walk, we're going to make it difficult, we're going to try and you know, not not be a, a good and positive actor. Am I right to be concerned? Um, well, um, uh, well, uh, that's very interesting because Dr. Mohammed Al Saban. Yes, I agree with you. He was the uh, chief uh, negotiator for climate change uh, for the kingdom uh, back in uh, before I believe, as the period you mentioned before COP twenty five. And uh, since then, there has been so much developments, even in uh, the clean energy and sustainable energy sector in the kingdom. But let's see what uh, our energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, has mentioned. And that really reflects the views of the country, because um, uh, uh, Prince Abdulaziz has always said that we, are not, we don't want to be a part of the problem. We want, to be, we want to create the solution for climate change. So in a way, I see that the country is certainly going ahead with its climate-driven uh, development agenda. And that is not just, uh, by the way, because we want to use solar or we want to cut our CO2 emission, but also because we are concerned about the, the, the whole environment within the kingdom itself just the Crown Prince announced a, a green initiative that is uh, very, uh, um, I would say, uh, very ambitious and uh, should uh, yield very good results. The vegetation, 10 billion trees to be planted in the kingdom and the Green Middle East initiative. So uh, 
the kingdom is working with its uh, neighbors within it, in the GCC or in the other Arab world to plant 40 billion or 50 billion trees. So 10 billion in the kingdom and 40 billion in the Middle East. So bringing a total of 50 billion trees. So all that suggests to me that the kingdom policy currently is certainly moving ahead and sustainable development and meeting its climate targets. Um, but with, with, our, with us, I believe even the signing of the COP25 certainly shows you that the kingdom is certainly serious about cutting its uh, CO2. So I believe I, we don't need to be worried about the position of the country from my own perspective, because for me, even as an oil analyst, I always want to, uh, if I, if I uh, just don't consider climate change, I don't think even I can, let's say, because uh, I also teach at a university in Saudi Arabia, and if I tell my students that climate change isn't happening, their parents have, they wouldn't even believe me, and most of these students are Saudis. So I believe there is even a cultural perception among the Saudi people that climate change is a reality, and even the Saudi youth, which makes up at least 50% of the population, and the, all these young uh, people, they all have uh, ambitions to work on clean energy and support the sustainable development of the kingdom, which will all tap into uh, meeting its climate targets. So this is, I think, what you should be optimistic about our position in COP26. Okay, good. Look, I'm much, I'm much reassured because, as you can imagine, you know, for somebody who's not a, a an expert on the kingdom, um, to see such a senior person taking such an outspoken and negative uh, approach, it, you know, gives rise to concern. And I know that I'm not the only one who has those concerns, but I'm much reassured, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm much reassured that it is you, Yusuf, who's teaching those young Saudis, the next generation of energy executives, and so on, who will be um, uh, running the energy companies and helping to lead the country in the future. That is certainly a source of, uh, a, a source of uh, comfort. Um, and on that note, sadly, we are out of time. I hope you, I can apologize to you because I've pushed you quite hard. I've, I've postulated sort of the difficult, I put the, posed the difficult questions to you. You've answered them magnificently and it's been an enormous pleasure. So uh, with that, um, I'd like to thank you for sharing your time and coming on cleaning up and uh, and allowing yourself to be grilled by me. But I think you've you've acquitted yourself absolutely marvelously, and I, and I really enjoyed it. Well, I I'm very much pleased to join you, clean up, and I always uh, cherish this uh, moment. I will uh, I will certainly uh, all the key learning points that I have learned from our conversation will certainly be reflected on my future uh, research and uh, consulting activities. So uh, certainly um, uh, I very much uh, enjoy, like the all the types of work that you're doing on EVs, on uh, uh, let's say meeting climate targets, and I believe that's what we all need to focus on, on achieving clean energy that makes this whole world a better place. So thank you so much for having me. Yusuf, thank you very much. It's always an enormous pleasure talking to you. So that was Yusuf Al-Shamari, the CEO of Seamarket, an energy analyst, giving us his view of the ins and outs of the energy transition from a Saudi perspective. Next week, we have a special episode of Cleaning Up. I'll be reading my Bloomberg New Energy Finance blog on trade and climate called It's the Trade, Stupid. And after that, we go into a short summer break, and then we'll be back in September. But please join me next week for the final episode of this season of Cleaning Up.